everyone, Garo here. Welcome back to Immigration Revelation. It was so awesome to be able to sit down with Fiona and the one and only Maeve Higgins. Maeve, this is my first time speaking to you. I know we've communicated over obviously email and Instagram and, and we obviously know Megan. Yeah. Megan Stalter. Yeah. So Megan, who used to be our nanny, Maeve and her and Megan did um, a na- the National Lampoons podcast together. She's wonderful. Oh, she's brilliant. Megan and Maeve are two hilarious women who both began their comedy careers doing stand-up. Yeah, I started to do stand-up around 2005. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, yeah, and I would do stand-up in Ireland and go to the Edinburgh Festival, which is obviously close by, and um, gradually started to move around and do it in other countries too. So, um, But yeah, that was when I started for sure. And obviously stand-up leads to a lot of different um, career paths, you know. For Maeve, this led to many paths and all successful. She's a writer who's authored books and is a regular contributor to the New York Times, The Guardian, The Irish Times, just to name a few. She's also produced and co-hosted incredible podcasts. She's also an actor, which we're gonna get into in a little bit. And for all my public radio nerds out there, including Fiona. And I love hearing you on NPR when I hear you on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Wait, don't tell me the NPR news quiz. Maeve is a regular panelist on the beloved weekend trivia show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which has been on the air since 1998. And now available for curbside pickup, Peter Sagal. Thank you, Bill. And for those unfamiliar with the show, panelists are not just entertaining, they're smart. I mean, really, really smart. Consumer Product Safety Commission shows that thousands of Americans had to go to the hospital in 2017 because of injuries caused by what? Oh, waiting so long on the phone to their medical insurance. No. <laughs> so nice to hear an Irish voice, the sense of humor and everything. It comes from what? Pizza. Yes, the answer is pizza. Pizza? And then you're obviously such a philanthropist, the amount. I'm not a philanthropist. No, you've been right. You're just creating awareness, though, and like, you know, all these fundraisers and, uh, you know, it's just so impressive to see what you've done as far as activism. Um, So we're grateful. Okay, but my new favorite thing is being called a philanthropist because I love, like, <laughs> I love to think of myself as kind of, you know, those old guys who made money, like, from coal. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> and has a big mustache and is just like, I built the railway. You know, like the Rockefellers. The Monopoly man. <laughs> yeah, the Monopoly yeah. man, exactly. <laughs> That's you now. <laughs> That's, That's me. you now. Venture capitalist, Maeve Higgins. <laughs> <I'm busy. laughs> Disruptor extraordinaire. And then I just give money to like really stupid, like, you know, who's going to be the new like laundry service? <laughs> like, like $1 million to them. Hey, it's called Shark Tank. It's a show. And I think that you would be fine on it. Oh, yeah, Maeve's the new shark in town. <laughs> okay, so she's not a philanthropist, I guess. But she has used her platform to raise awareness on really important issues, most notably on immigration and climate change. She co-hosts Mothers of Invention, which we can't recommend enough. It's an absolutely phenomenal podcast that highlights stories of black, brown, and indigenous people, women, and youth who've been at the front lines of climate change innovation for generations. And while she is really outspoken about a lot of important issues, she said something about herself that honestly caught me by surprise. 
Well, I don't think I'm an activist, to be really? honest. Um, interesting. No, I don't think that's fair on like activists because I do, you know, bits and pieces where I can. Like I try and use my platform to uh, sometimes get some money and sometimes get like some attention to, you know, different uh, like subjects. And obviously immigration being one of them, like I made a podcast about immigration and, yeah. you know, and I write as much as I can about it. But activism to me is something different. It's kind of uh, on the ground work and I see myself as in a supporting role to people that are on the ground. So this is like me being modest or anything. It's it's probably semantics, but um, I don't. Yeah. yeah, I I yeah, I'm not an activist, but I do um try and when my work when I can combine my work with something that I think could be useful, I try and do that. But like as you know, I also am in like a ghost horror film. <laughs> Why don't we see ghosts every day? The movie she's referring to is Extraordinary, which is absolutely fitting for reasons we'll get into, but this movie stars Maeve alongside the brilliant Barry Ward and comedy icon Will Forte. Is evil. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean anything to anybody except it's just I like mean, silly which i also like doing it is truly um one of my favorite movies yeah the directors did a really good job like so it's an irish film and it's a horror comedy called extraordinary and perfect for halloween very good for <laughs> halloween spooky season and uh the <laughs> the lads who wrote it uh it's a really long process like um making something i uh I think it was seven years, like since they had the idea, you know, and then there's all these steps in between. So I was really proud of them for, well, for making it happen. Then just for, um, you know, that it turned out well, like it turned out into what they wanted it to look like and feel like. And that's quite hard to do with films, which is my only film. But I so I was kind of learning the world a bit. And I think it's really hard. I don't know if you have clients who go for the O1 visa which is the entertainer visa the artist visa um, but it can be hard with films because it's like well I was working for years on this one script or this one pre-production and it didn't happen <laughs> and that's really common in the film world so um, I was just delighted this one actually got made honestly. The Irish film industry has grown substantially over the last decade that's partly thanks to Screen Ireland the state film board agency dedicated to funding Irish film, TV, and animation industries. It's the money. It's, it's always the money. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, we're definitely going to get to the O one, but I was thinking that I was hoping that we could start with um, you being from Cove. Um, and if you wouldn't mind, I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about Annie Moore. I know you've dealt with this pretty extensively in your podcast and also in your book, but I feel like there are people who are still not necessarily, um, maybe not aware of her story. And I think um, given all the topical conversations around the horrendous like family separation policy, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about, about Annie. Yeah, I'm so interested to hear what you see as the parallels because certainly you know, Annie Moore arrived in, you know, more than 150 years ago. She was the first um, immigrant through the gates of the new Ellis Island at the time.
she left from my hometown of Cove and she, I mean, technically she was an unaccompanied, undocumented minor with her two little brothers. But in those days that didn't, that didn't matter. Those words weren't even used. It was, there was no stigma. There was no paperwork necessary. Um, unless of course, if you happen to be Chinese that at that time you would not be allowed in. So there was still, um, you know, racist laws, but, uh, for, for many people, especially white people, you didn't need a passport. You didn't need a visa. Um, which obviously I think when you hear Irish Americans or German Americans talking about, oh, well, they came through the right way, it was very different. So it's not a really fair comparison because I know as well, Annie, I guess, was, I talk about her like I know her. <laughs> There's yeah. like a statue at home in Cove. And I think, I mean, it, it's kind of extraordinary, right, that she made this journey and then she was reunited with her parents who had come to the U.S., you know, a few years earlier and she was, I think, 15, the boys were younger. And I mean, what a, you know, coming from rural Ireland, a small town Ireland, and then making this journey and thank God she was welcomed in. She got to live on the Lower East Side. I think she did have a very difficult life. It's not like it was, you know, all the streets were lined with gold, not at all. You know, apparently she had 11 children and only a couple of them made it to adulthood which is, you know, a nightmare. <laughs> um, she married a German baker and um, I think she died at 55. So like nowadays I kind of think, okay, so I guess her equivalent would be children coming from maybe the Northern Triangle, maybe Salvadoran kids yeah. who, you know, again, either they're separated by I don't know, like drought or violence or something that's happening at home. And the parents think your best shot is to try and get to America. Maybe they have an auntie here or something. And then there's, you know, the other children that we know about that is just really difficult to even think about, which is that they do arrive at the border with their parents and then they're separated. And, you know, the the latest reporting shows that over 500 of those children who were taken in 2017 and 2018 have not been reunited and these are small kids yeah and they can't find them I know it's disgusting and I know you've been to the border as well maybe and seen some some stuff there with family separation in some ways in her book Maeve in America essays by a girl from somewhere else Maeve talks about her experience going to Friendship Park which is off the U.S. Mexico border between Tijuana and San Diego with all of our technology with all of this money that gets poured into border enforcement um, so, I mean, I don't know, where is your head at, at with that, like as immigration attorneys? And you mentioned that you did some work um, in, did you say Dili? Yeah, Carly uh, yeah, went down for some pro bono stuff down in a family detention center in Dili, Texas, through the law school. Caro, if you want to tell, say a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, so are the Immigration Law Society at Chicago, Kent, which is my law school uh, and Fiona's law school as well. Um, I got to talk about a deeply impactful experience volunteering at a women and children's detention center with my colleagues from law school. After that experience, I learned that asylum law isn't just complicated. It changes. A lot. That's the unfortunate thing, isn't it? That immigration law is decided by the, um, like the presidential arm of the executive branch. And as we've seen, each time that the executive branch makes any change to immigration policies, it affects tens of thousands of lives. Lives just like any Moore's. 
That's, I mean, that's a real flaw. Yeah, it has been a big part of a lot of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. It's something that we have been, you know, really promoting, you know, kind of pushing for for years when we go to Washington, D.C. every year for our National Day of Actions to get an independent immigration court. So that things like this, hopefully, um, you know, would uh, would not happen in the future if they were judges were impartial, you know, truly impartial. I mean, the whole forced family separation, Maeve, you mentioned there that they can't find the parents of these children. There's, what, over 500 of them. The Justice Department say that parents of some 545 migrant children who are currently in the United States have not been found. And I mean, if they wanted to, they would have been able to find them. His parents were separated from their children at the U.S. border by border officials under President Trump's zero-tolerance policy from 2017. It's just the lack of care and just the cruel the way that policy it was created and implemented is just, I think, the most shameful chapter in U.S. history. We'll be back after a short break. The one thing that I always kind of really just upsets me is thinking about how many Irish Americans have been associated with this administration in particular. Um, And I know it's something that I've heard you speak about as well. I know in your book you mentioned um, Mike Pence, um, you know, the stories about his Irish immigrants and Paul Ryan, Mm. you know, talking about how his great-great-grandparents came, you know, survived the famine and now they're doing everything they can to to stop like today's refugees and anyway Trump his mother coming through Alice Island um can you talk a bit about um this Irish immigrant kind of privilege and and how you know it seems to it's just that whole pulling the ladder up you know after themselves we see it so much I think um today I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of that yeah, I mean, I certainly think it's to do with race and I think it's it's whiteness and most Irish immigrants, you know, historically have been white and still are white. And I guess that coming to America where being white is so is such a powerful um, because of white supremacy here, which like the I mean, the people who wrote the Constitution owned slave, enslaved people. So I just yeah. think you're at an advantage here when you come to when you come to America you're at an advantage and they just use that for all it's worth and then they don't acknowledge it so that it's really um like when I kind of got here a few years ago I was like there's something going on (laughs) like it's almost like Mm. it's not hidden because thank god we have all of these like scholars and people of color and black Americans who are like properly taking a critical history of how the nation was formed but yeah. I think it's kind of confusing because you're like, well, you know, yeah, the Irish did have it hard. Like I came from, you know, Cove, which was where like over a million people left from my hometown during the worst years of Irish history. So I learned all about the reasons why you'd leave. And it, it was terrible. There was oppression. There was colonialism. There was even famine. Um, but like then when you look at, you know, Mike Pence, Fiona, like he's an easy target, isn't he? Because yeah it's so straightforward his grandfather uh left ireland in 1921 so 
we know that was a civil war in Ireland. So he fled a civil war. He was allowed into America, no problem. He right. then, which Pence fought to the nail to not allow Syrians fleeing their um, civil war. So, you know, there's like round one. And then it's like, then his grandfather, he often boasts, like pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He worked as a tram driver in Chicago. And like, I had a look and um, the Chicago like public transit didn't start employing uh, black Americans until the 1930s because of like some really brave legal actions taken by black people then. So he already had an advantage in getting that job Mm -hmm. um, because he happened to be white, you know? So you just can't say that like he did it by himself. His whiteness completely assisted him and he was able to build up capital that then like led to somebody like Mike Pence who, um, you know, it's still hard for me to trace the politics. Like I can't fully grasp it because he talks about this history of immigration, but he so picks and chooses which parts of it. Um, that it is, it's, you know, the only explanation I think is just wanting to hold on to this power that's, that is sadly innate still when you're here, you know? Um, and I don't know that, I don't really know that, um, I've been saying it for years, as you said, and lots of us say, talk about this and, um, look at Cubans today voting for Donald Trump and technically they're Latinx. I'm from Miami. You're hitting a soft spot. Yeah. Carolina's from Miami. <laughs> I'm not Cuban myself, but I, I, mean, yeah. I, I, that's my community. You know, it's like, come on. So they have their reasons and, <laughs> but it's just like, it's, I don't know how, honestly, I think it's a good argument and I feel very righteous, but it, it's not effective it's not effective like it doesn't seem to change their mind there's a common denominator there and i think you you did say it it's whiteness because that exists in every single part of this world and there is this feeling of i am not an immigrant i'm an exile i'm not an immigrant that's them versus us kind of mentality oh it's so infuriating as an irish immigrant to see you know people try to in on the one hand you know i remember sean spicer wearing his like shamrock pants on like saint patrick's day and then you know, the Muslim ban is is kind of in simultaneously. Like, it's just, oh, it's so... And I know you st- you did stuff with Irish stands. Did you, Maeve, with Aona Reardon? Yeah, um, yeah. So, like, the, there's definitely, like, some people speaking up from, the, from Ireland today, you know, and some politicians come over here and they kind of have a go at the administration. And I really appreciate that. And I think, Fiona, it yeah. is, like, our responsibility to... Um, yeah try and talk to each other too and to try and you know get get our people (laughs) um but I just don't know how effective it is honestly like that's you know yeah I just can't really like you can be right but that doesn't mean you're gonna win the argument and so yeah I'm just always trying to think of like okay well who is better where should I put my energy you know where's more effective than because it's a marathon it's not a sprint yes so true definitely yeah yeah, and it's been a long it's been a very long marathon and it's not over yet obviously mm-hmm. it's been you know it's been I've been what working in the field for about 15 years and you know that we've been close mm-hmm. to immigration reform so many times and up and down and I mean you just like but there's so much in the media right I mean you hear about um you know uh, uh, like there's this whole merit-based immigration versus family and, and humanitarian and I know Maeve 
you've spoken about how um you know you're so lucky to be able to go back and forth and you talk about America being a fortress to a lot of people um and one thing that I the a line that I had really kind of noted in one of your books um you know you spoke about Annie Moore not not having made a fortune or written a book or you know invented a computer and saying why should immigrants be deemed extraordinary in order to deserve um, a place at the table and I think that that is something that we hear of a lot as well. This whole, um, you know, hierarchy of the immigrants that are deserving uh, to come to the US. And it is also very infuriating. And I'd love to just hear some of your, your thoughts on, on that. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, because as you mentioned, I got the visa that is for the Alien of Extraordinary Ability visa. And it's a great visa and I'm glad to have it. Um, but it did kind of, make me think about, hmm, do I deserve this more than like the baby in detention? Absolutely not. But like once you go down that road and I'm happy to go down it and I'm so curious about where it's going to lead me. Um, I think too that like we're all complicit in those discussions. Like even earlier we were talking about a baby in detention and like really is that baby more deserving than, you know, a 28 year old single man who maybe has a criminal conviction? like. Why do we get to be the arbiters of that? Like the documented and versus the undocumented. And it's like, there's no, there's no one better than the other. And it's this like uh, man-made hierarchy. really. Exactly. But that's what borders are too. You know, like borders are, you know, they seem so real to us because we believe in them. <laughs> like, it's like such a mind bending thing. You know, you can say like the island of Ireland, right? Which is, a, yeah a distinct island but there's a border there yeah that's invisible except we make it visible you know because it's um the top six counties are part of the of great britain but it's like what <laughs> what are we doing I, I do think that once we start talking about the deservingness of different immigrants and different citizens then you have to look at actual nation states and what is the purpose of nation states and is it really the ethical way to um, live in the world and you know I read um, a really great essay I think it's called We Refugees as Hannah Arendt and she was stateless which is you know kind of a extraordinary uh, position to be in to be stateless um, because she was a Jewish person living in Germany who obviously left in the 1930s thank goodness and then she was in France for a while and then she ended up in um, in New York. But she kind of realized that she didn't have any human rights, even though she remained a human being, because she didn't have um, papers for a specific country. And that is so terrifying. <laughs> and like since then, there's been the UN Declaration of Human Rights, right? Because I guess after World War II, after what happened to the Jewish population, what happened to them, what was done to them, then I guess all, you know, all nations came together and were like, oh my God, this is barbaric. Like, we cannot let this happen. We have to say that human beings deserve rights. But look where we are today. It's not, it doesn't make any difference. It just matters where you're born.
Yeah, and I think, you know, over the course of, you know, it, it didn't just happen over the Trump administration, but there has been, you know, systematic dehumanization of immigrants as well. And I think that, you know, um, a lot of the terms that are used are just horrendous. And, and you know, and I think that um, people have, you know, immigrants are, are have not been treated like human beings under under this administration. And we see that in so in so many ways. But one of the things that I love about you, Maeve, is that, you know, you you write about immigration in a way that, um, you know, I know you write for for the New York Times. You've written some amazing pieces there. You wrote one that so many of our my colleagues were just so happy to read. You wrote um, it's God Bless America and Her Lawyers. And it was all about immigration lawyers after the travel ban. And then the other one that you wrote Oh, it's amazing. It's just an incredible piece. Um, and then the piece that you wrote um during the pandemic that we were chatting about before um in the New York Review, these um the essential workers America treats as dis- disposable. Um and just talking about how, you know, we've kind of taken all their labor for so many years and and you know, in times of trouble, you know, they're the first to be thrown overboard essentially. Um and I wonder, you know we've obviously we're obviously so close to the election now um I did an event in full disclosure with the Biden campaign the other night um to try to get out the vote and stuff like that and and you know we've heard a lot of promise of immigration reform and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on what what we might see I know obviously none of us can predict the future or just on any thoughts really on on the future of, of immigration as we as we know today. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's never been more um, walls, which is interesting, even since the fall of the Berlin Wall, all around the world, there's actually like been massive construction of walls and massive militarization of borders, not just here in the US. And that is because um, of climate change. So the wealthier countries, know what's coming and so they're Mm -hmm. really building up their kind of fortress um like capacities and so that's i think that's coming i think there's going to be already there's more people on the move than there have been since world war ii and that's just going to increase because of um you know climate events climate disasters I mean, there's already been american um climate migrants you know and It, there's there's going to be more that so many people half the people in you know the world live in cities and so many cities are yeah. near water like yeah it's it's going to get really dark but the thing is that uh, climate affects um the poor and it affects women and children first and worst so i don't know that the actual powerful people will feel it um first they won't feel it first so it'll take a, a longer time But like, as for the immediate future, like, yeah, do events of Biden, like, great. Like, I do think he's um, a lot more promising than Trump. And it was interesting Mm. to hear him in the debate speaking about, like, in his first 100 days, he's going to send, you know, immigration reform legislation to Congress, you know. Yeah. Like, I hope that he does that. And also, that was kind of, you know, there's so many other issues. I was glad to hear him still talk about that and to talk about climate, because the two things are so... Hand in hand. Intertwine now, absolutely. Yeah. We've, we've been really close to immigration reform on so many occasions, and it's been really heartbreaking to get so close and then, you know, for it to just fall apart. But um Vice President Biden has made a commitment to put make it a priority. And I think, 
you know, reading about um, some of the work, you know, in that article that you wrote for the New York Review, I mean, um, you just like when you hear these human stories and there's so many people who we meet um, through, you know, just through our firm that, you know, there's just no option for them. You know, they're here, they're undocumented. There is no option and they have employers that would be willing to sponsor them. They have, you know, they've all these like potential, they're hardworking, they're trust. I mean, every day we meet people and the option is just, we just have to wait for, for some immigration reform. And I really hope that in the next few months, we'll be having conversations about that in a, just in a way that is just hopeful because these people have given so much to America and haven't been able to get anything in return. And, you know, just even the security of, you know, like being able to be, to stop like, you know, living in the shadows and kind of watching their back and with all these ice raids and everything. It's just, there's just so much fear and anxiety in the community. And I think I really look forward to hopefully having those conversations would just be unbelievable. Wouldn't it be brilliant? Um, It would be great. I mean, like I do, I do think that, um, that, you know, 11 million people and then, I I re- it needs to be comprehensive it needs to be trustworthy because like with DACA I know that so many people were uh you know too frightened to put their names in a database to put their families at risk and to you know yeah. and honestly I understand that because I do think you know like it's not this isn't an accident that there is this huge population of um vulnerable workers right and so many undocumented people are people of working age and I think what capitalism would tell you is very useful is to have this population where that you can um force into worse work conditions and lower pay and you can also use them to kind of uh threaten other um you know, working class people, because you can say, well, okay, we'll just give your jobs to this, these people who are waiting. It's a really good way of dividing people and also just getting labor costs down. So it's not like a mix up. It's not like, oh, it's been unfortunate that we haven't been able to regulate their status. It's very useful. Yeah, absolutely. And people are more than happy to um, reap the literal fruits of people's labor without giving them anything in return. Um, And I long for the day when that comes to an end. Hopefully it will be sooner um, rather than later. But um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know if you've seen it. um, Are you familiar with the group Define American? Jose Antonio Vargas. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate their work. They're incredible. And so they just recently released a report called Change the Narrative, Change the World. And it was, I think they'd been doing research for years, but essentially it is about the representation of immigrants in media. And so they show kind of, they follow like um, different immigrant stories on TV. And so they talk about how there's such an over-representation of undocumented immigrants on TV and also criminal immigrants, you know, storylines involving criminal issues um, that also involve immigration. And they talk about how, you know, their studies show that, um, you know, telling stories like this can actually shift attitudes and can really like, you know, affect people's mindsets on immigration. And I wasn't sure if if you've seen anything about the report or just kind of what, you know, I guess working in kind of media entertainment industry, whether you had any any thoughts on any of that. 
Yeah, certainly. I mean, they've been doing um, solid work. Like in during the 2016 presidential election, it was actually them who, uh, you know, basically got the AP and also Hillary Clinton, who was candidate at the time, to stop saying um, illegal yeah. and to use yeah. the word undocumented. And it's funny because, you know, that seems like kind of natural now and you can see... Um, which side of the fence people are on by the language that they choose to use. And I do think language is huge. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, I just, I just wonder, like, I'm always wondering this because I obviously, you know, like try to do the same thing, right. I try to like use my platform to demonstrate like the humanity of immigrants, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what's the best, if there's some, uh, I don't know like complicity in that almost because or if it's extractive you know to take immigrant stories and to kind of um to prove that they're human like it shouldn't come to that if you know what I mean um but then it's yeah. like well okay but this is the world we live in so um I don't know I it, it's a really hard thing to think about Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very fair point. I, I'm, I, I think it's an interesting perspective because in a way you are trying to change the system, but you are also being a part of the system if you're participating. In yeah. And the same can be said for, for attorneys, right? Like, yeah, I, oh, yeah, yeah like I spent time in court and, um, it was Varick street, which is like for, a, uh, detained, um, like I guess detained immigrants you know like some of them a lot of them have some kind of conviction and deportation hearing yeah 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 and I was really struck by how uh quiet and meek I would say like the immigrants were and a lot of that is because of the the theater of it right they're put in these orange suits they're shackled like you were there were they on video or was it in person that you saw the uh so it was a mix I was there early last year so there were some people in on video which is obviously much worse and then there were some people still appearing in person you know if you hadn't been there or if like I can't quite put my finger on it, but I'm sort of like, okay, the lawyer almost like smooths the process. The result usually doesn't change. In these cases, the result is deportation. So it's like they're in court, their family is sitting in the back seats. They're afraid to even look at their family. It's like, well, couldn't they actually just be like, fuck this? Like, I'm a, I'm going to scream at this judge and I'm going to hug my daughter. Yeah. The result is, you know, like, but there was just something about how... um smoothly it was run that really uh I found really chilling and that they were not really advocating for themselves like I don't know really where I'm going with it but I I am kind of like like you said it's like well even working in the system am I part of the problem because really what I think it needs is to be abolished like I think that um the immigration courts are just so deeply flawed like it needs a total start over um but you know I don't know (laughs) yeah no but you know I do I know what you're saying it's like by are we like exploiting immigrant stories by telling them or just even having those conversations I think is important it's 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 food for thought for us as well but I do I think that having just seeing like I think right now given the over-representation of undocumented immigrants in media and in criminal and like when there's when when Americans, let's say, you know, who are not as involved in immigration as us, 
see if if the only thing they see about immigration is people in immigration detention or in some uh, you know kind of deportation proceedings or a criminal storyline then I feel like they anytime they think of immigration they think of just that part of immigration and I think that given all the people that we see so we do a lot of O1s um and we wanted to make sure that this podcast was not just about O1 clients or people who are you know have that kind of extraordinary ability but I do think that sharing those stories and maybe your story as in uh, like what you've done with the O1 visa since you've been here is important because I think it gets people thinking about immigration in other ways that are really like there are so many other ways other parts of immigration that I think is it's important to talk about that too yeah yeah I agree yeah I think so I think you're right and I think um I mean, I, ideally, like this is coming from somebody who I literally had a podcast where like I would interview a different immigrant every week. Ideally, I could get out of the way and then whoever it is can tell their own story and not have it mediated by, you know, the kind of uh, white, you know, very uh, friendly face of like um, one receiving like entertainer like myself. So um but then, as you say, like, because if if it's kind of like undocumented or criminal or whatever, you know, those narratives. But really, like, what makes a real difference to immigrants' lives is policy. And, like, what makes a real difference is um, just healthcare and opportunity. So, like, I can get a bit, I just wor- worry that, like, the focus is a little bit off. I don't know the power of, like, I, I guess Divine American and you know, some think tanks would be like, yes, you need to change the temperature. You need to make it, make people more aware that there's other types of immigrants and the immigrants work well in this, you know, but I'm a bit like, mm, it needs to really change and really quickly because it's just devastating. Yeah, but it comes from, you know, all this comes from who's elected, right? And I think that, I mean, it comes from putting people in office who care about things like this. And I mean, our first episode, we had Belen Sisa, who is, has DACA, who, her story is amazing. And she ended up working for, not by accident, but through a lot of amazing advocacy work. She was Bernie Sanders, his um, Latino press secretary for his presidential campaign. And she spoke to myself and Carolina about being, um, she was one of the writers of Bernie's immigration plan. And, you know, we Carolina- mind-blowing we are like how carly i remember carolina said how is this not a part of the process that the people who are going to be impacted by policy are helping to write it she was saying this like this was the first time this was like revolutionary and i'm here like how why why are we yeah oh that's so great to hear though and and also like you know she could be she could be lured into hollywood right to be like a screenwriter or like the kind of uh person on the team that they can say oh it's okay we have an undocumented you know so it's so cool that she's like going for she's going for real power and that is like so impressive and that potentially like you said um and that is stunning that like she was the first yeah you know that's like among the first policy writer who's actually an undocumented person or has has that mixed family or whatever that's that's huge One of the things she said was it wasn't something I realized people were fighting for because her whole life she just kind of lived in this fear of, you know, any second now I could be taken to this detention center around the corner that where she lived. 
And now that she heard that there was this movement and there was this grassroots organization, she was, I mean, inspired. So inspired that she got to where she got and effectuated the change she did. I am really glad, like something that definitely gives me a lot of, um, is really bolstering to me is the youth movement. And that is both in climate and in immigration. Um, because I just think like, and the dreamers are older now and they're able to say, okay, here's some, here's a better way of doing it. You know, like don't divide us up from our, from our parents, you know, like everybody has to be lifted together. And then the younger generation are running with that. And they're also just so aware of their power and of the uh, demographic shifts that are coming. I mean, so are the white people, right? That's why they're really trying to crush the vote and <laughs> just doing all sorts of chicanery. But I think that the something that's really, really um, promising is like the immigrant youth um, and the climate youth movements. Yes. And really the the youth movement is just so important because that was actually something that I was, it was an enlightenment when I spoke to Belen or, and Fiona as well, that yes, President Obama is of course credited for signing the executive order that, that signed, you know, DACA mm-hmm. and the law and all that. But she was very, uh, she made sure to remind everyone that like, that didn't just happen overnight. He didn't just wake up one day yeah. and was like, yep, I'm gonna save these kids. Like, no, it was pressure from actual undocumented youth who were getting arrested who were doing all these sorts of things to effectuate change and and that's really what happened i mean it wasn't just barack obama signed an executive order i know and that's the funny thing about and i know it's not a it's not a real carly but you know saying like abraham lincoln freed it's like (laughs) abraham lincoln was driven to that by the incredible bravery and blood of enslaved people Maeve, we've taken up so much of your time. I'm so, we're so grateful that you took the time to speak to us today. Um, Oh my God, immigration attorneys are my favorite. I can talk to you all day. I just, and thank you for the work that you do day in, day out. It's just, I know how difficult it is just from observing. So I really appreciate you both and, you know, best of luck, my God. Thank you. We'd love to chat to you again um, and, and in a few months when we're hopefully having a more positive conversation. I know. Wouldn't that be so fun? Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks a million. It was great to chat to you both. Thanks for the time. Wow, thank you so much to Maeve Higgins, not just for joining us on the show, but for all that she does to bring humor and sorely needed reason to the world. Be sure to follow Maeve on social media, and if you want more information on anything you heard in this episode, like Maeve's work, her podcasts, books, articles, you can find links in this episode's info section and on our website at immigrationrevelation.co. And as always, a huge thank you to Alva Fitzpatrick and Ignacio Sass for creating our theme song. It was produced and mixed at South Music and Sound Studios in Santa Monica, California. Till next time. Yeah.